Welcome to Pursuing Perfectcellence, the weekly, bi-weekly, or frankly, whenever I can get around to it, glimpse into my type A-tastic journey away from the paralyzing pursuit of perfection and toward the empowering expectation of excellence. I'm your host, Hannah Holmes. Now, buckle up. I'm not exactly sure where this car is headed, but I'm pretty sure it's going to be a fun ride. As the longtime radio DJ for Power 103 and Rock 108, sports anchor, and then lead anchor for K-Texas, and now the face of the historic Paramount Theater, this week's guest is not only a famous voice and face in Abilene, but another very special lifelong friend of mine. George Levesque and I met on a softball field in the early 90s when the Abilene Community Theater commenced with weekly rivalry softball games against the local McMurray University's theater department every Sunday afternoon. A tall, full-bearded first baseman who flawlessly managed to field even the wildest throw without sacrificing the Marlboro that dangled from his lips, George captured my attention He was a student at McMurray who struck me as a bad boy, but I definitely liked him. I was a mere 14 years old at the time, and I played on the rivalry team for the community theater. I never foresaw how much our lives would intertwine when I would attend McMurray as a theater major myself four years later, and George would, well, still be a student there. I've had the pleasure of sharing the stage with George a number of times since then. He was always cast in a much more notable role than I, and I basically spent my college years gawking at his raw talent, both on stage and vocally. So yeah, I met him when I was just a kid and he was in college, and I ended up going to college with him. But before you jump to judgment about George's extended plan for college graduation, Listen to his story of courage and perseverance, one in which he looked opposition in the face and gave it a wink before barreling past it to leave an indelible mark of greatness on the Abilene community. I hope you walk away with a sense of hope and courage as you get to know George a little better than you did before. Welcome, George Levesque. So welcome, George. I'm so glad to have you here today. Thanks for having me. I'm super pumped and nervous because you're a pro at this whole like interview scene and all that. And yet it's funny because I go way back with you, so I shouldn't feel nervous. Former pro. I don't do this for a living and you do now. I mean, you you do this. I don't do it for a living. I do it for a a, uh, hobby. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so it's super fun. Tell me just a little bit about yourself. Yeah, I've been in Abilene since 1990, but kind of I'm pretty much from here. Mm -hmm. If you're from Colorado City, Texas, which is, you know, 65 miles Uh west of here, this is the the big town. This is where you came to to go to Sears and buy the the tough skin jeans before school started. (laughs) This is where you saw Empire Strikes Back for the first time. Okay. Abilene is, it may not be your hometown, but it, it kind of is when you're okay. from a little town. Okay. You know, it's kind of the hub town. So you were born and raised in Colorado yeah. City? Born uh, at Root Memorial Hospital, former hospital there in Colorado City in 72 and raised there uh, until, I, until I came to college. Yeah, I went straight from Colorado City to Abilene. Tell me a little bit about just your upbringing in okay. Colorado City. Well, it was normal like any other kid raised in a cult. 
Uh, <laughs> I actually that was a teaser because I knew a little bit about yeah. your history, so I just wanted you to get. You know, it was something I, I didn't talk much about until about 2010, uh, and then uh, McMurray asked me to give the commencement speech that year, and uh, he honestly said, I, "I heard your story, and I'd like you to tell your story." Mm-hmm. Um, so to me, it was kind of a pulling the bandaid off. Mm-hmm. And this is the first time I, I kind of told my story. So I'm a little more comfortable now doing it than okay. I was, you know, 10 years ago. But I, I was raised uh, a Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I lived uh, with a, a family that was very, very devout. There are different levels of devout in any religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was the presiding overseer for that area. He started that congregation. Uh, he started a congregation in Post. He started a congregation in Snyder. He started a congregation in Sweetwater. So we're talking about a very prolific, mm-hmm. uh, a very prolific religious leader. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and that was my father. Mm-hmm. And to be completely frank, I, I think I have some of his, some of his qualities. I don't really translate them to religion. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but he was a, he was a, a, a powerful speaker. Uh, and uh, he was able to convince people to do things, mm-hmm. and uh, he did. He convinced many people to to become Jehovah's Witness. So I grew up in a, in that very strange upbringing of um, being no part of the world while living in the world. And I know that's other religions feel the same way, but they take it to a n- different degree. Oh, really? So, yeah. Mm-hmm. So you know, you grow up, and I never opened a Christmas present till I was eighteen. I mm-hmm. uh, every time the Pledge of Allegiance was spoken, I I mean, I wasn't. I didn't sit there and pout, but I would never raise my arm to my chest or or say the words when the Pledge of Allegiance was going on. I stood stoically uh, uh, there. Um, we didn't do birthdays. I, I opened my first birthday present at 18 years old. Um, I carried a little laminated card in my wallet that said, "If there's a if there's an accident." And I need a blood transfusion. Do not give it to me. And I carried that when I was eight years old. Wow. So, you know, I, it, it was a different kind of upbringing. But like anything else, whatever, however you're raised is just who you are. It until is. at some point you, it dawns on you like, that's not what other kids are doing. And this isn't exactly normal. Mm-hmm. So at what point was that with you? Uh, high school. I, just for everybody. That's your formative mm-hmm. years. And so when high school came around it, uh, I, I looked around at the people that I wasn't supposed to be looking around at, the people that I went to school with, mm-hmm. as opposed to the people that I went to church with. They don't call it church, but uh, mm-hmm. I, and and I found mentors there, and I found people that I thought, man, I, I want to do what he does. And all of my friends wanted to do this thing called uh, college. Mm-hmm. They wanted to go to college, <laughs> and and uh, and it sounded great. My my parents sent me off to the commune in New York. And I spent a couple of weeks living on the commune and eating the food we made mm-hmm. and printing literature for the church. And that's what they wanted me to do was mm-hmm. to go live in the commune for a few years and give, I mean, you don't, you don't get paid. You just, you're going and you're serving and you're, yeah. yeah. And, mm-hmm. uh, that uh, didn't, wasn't me. It was the path laid out for me, but it wasn't me. And I quickly realized I wanted more education. I wanted more opportunities. Mm-hmm. And uh, so somewhere during high school, I think it was pretty much my sophomore year, I kept putting it back going, these are bad thoughts. These are bad oh, thoughts that okay. I don't want to do this. Um, but then in my junior year, I came to terms with, no, th- this is okay. It's okay to want something different than what your parents want for you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that yours is a really extreme example, but I think that 
I think we all kind of go through that crisis. Not maybe not everybody, but as a as a kid and then growing up and figuring out what it is that you love, so many times we actually are really busy trying to live out somebody else's script for our life. It's not unique at all, is it? It's You're not. Right. Yeah. And some of us have this breakthrough where we can say this is what's happening and now I'm going to find this strength in people around me to help me break out of that and to write my own script for my life. Some people are scared to do that. Um, You were empowered to do that. Were there some people in your life that helped to empower you? Yes and no. Okay. Not in the decision process. That was all me. I was uh, 16, 17, I guess 16, and I, I used to have a job as a janitor mm-hmm. in the morning. So we, I'd get up, um, set my alarm for about 2.30 or 3 in the morning. I'd get up and I'd wait outside for the van to pick me up, and then we would go to Sweetwater, and we would mop and buff the IGA and the Anthony's, which is Bell's now, and, uh-huh. and, uh, and we did that about three days a week, and then you go to school. Mm-hmm. And you just try to stay awake, you know, because you've just been working wow. for five hours and got up at two. And, and that was fine. I mean, I enjoyed it. It, it was a little freedom and, and, and it was goodness. Um, and one morning I, I got back in uh, from Sweetwater. Uh, I sat down there and, and uh, uh, skipped breakfast to ran to the bus stop and I missed the bus. Mm-hmm. And we lived about two miles from high school or so. And I said, man, I, I, you know, I didn't mean to miss the bus. I just got home late from Sweetwater. Mm-hmm. And I said, uh, is there any way I could get a ride, you know, on the way in? And uh, I was told no. And I had to walk two miles from my house to, to, uh, to high school. And that two mile walk made up my mind. It was the craziest thing. Oh wow! And I went, that's it. I'm done. And I'm absolutely done. And I came up with possible. Uh, objectives of how to get out. But I knew that they were never going to let me go to college, no matter how much I asked. I knew that was never going to happen. So it was, I need to run away from home. I need to just find a way to to, to get the hell out of there. Mm-hmm. And uh, I walked into my high school, 30 minutes, an hour late to school. I mean, right. it's a long walk, two yeah. miles, and I was not in a rush. Mm-hmm. Uh, and of course, the one person I run into is that teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, you have that teacher. And he was uh, the theater teacher. He saw me walk in. He's mad. What the heck are you doing here an hour late? And he looked at my face and he knew something was wrong. Mm. And, he saw you. And he knew. He just knew something big happened. And it, and the only big thing that happened that day was I made up my mind. And that was it. I never changed my mind. I knew it was the right thing to do. And he talked me out of running away and said, you need to do it the right way. And uh, so I did. And uh, he put me in touch with a lawyer. Mm-hmm. who uh, pro bono helped me out and said, here's what's going to happen. They're going to sue you if you try to leave. And that's exactly what they were going to do. Mm-hmm. And he said, you need to have your legal disabilities as a minor removed. So I did. I, I, I planned it out. A, a few weeks later, I had a conversation with my father. I sat him down and I said, I want to go to college. And he said, you can. You can go to college. Uh, but you're, you can't live at this house. You need to be out in 24 hours. And I said, I'll be out right now. I'll be out in 30 minutes. Mm. Um, and uh, I packed up a box and threw in you know, a handful of clothes, my Bible, uh, my pillow. I really like my pillow for some reason. Mm-hmm. And uh, called a friend who's my best friend to this day, picked me up and drove me off. Uh, and then at that point, I had to sue them to have my legal disabilities removed because they weren't going to sign me up. They refused to sign me into my senior year in, in high school. Oh, so, yeah. so from there, I, it, it was, I was out on my own, but 
but I did have help. I just didn't have help making the decision. Yeah, yeah. I love it though because you're you're explaining that like you you made a decision and then you leveraged resources around you. You yeah. I mean and you had people to help you recognize yeah. the resources around. Oh, I did have people you. and I and I relied on their help. Yeah, that's that's good. And so, I lived with people for years before. Well, I mean, that's it. I've never seen my family. I I I as I said that. I've seen them one time in in 30 years. Uh-huh. They live in Sweetwater. They're mm-hmm. they're, they're right around the corner. Um, but yeah, I've, I've relied on, on the goodness of people for, for, or did rely on the goodness of people for years. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So were you disowned per se? Yeah. Oh or? yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. I was disowned. Uh, and I knew that was going to happen. There's just an official module that the church does, which is disfellowship. Mm-hmm. It's excommunication. Mm-hmm. And so, um, but I'd been out for about three days. I was living on the couch of my theater teachers. I wasn't planning on living there. Uh, I was, to be frank, I was going to be homeless. Mm-hmm. And uh, he said, you know, come stay on the couch. And I did. I stayed on the couch for about a month. And about three days in, a friend came and, and, and said, hey, why don't, you, why don't you go with me to my church tonight? I was like, okay. So I went to some Baptist church in Colorado City. I only went one time. Mm-hmm. Sat in the back row. But my dad was an important figure in the community. Everybody knew him. Right. And sure enough, word got to them within days that their kid had gone to another church and that's sacrilege. You don't ever set foot in another church. That's how cults work. Mm-hmm. You keep a close, close track. I mean, can you imagine if your church said, if you go to a Methodist church for a day, you're out. Yeah. That no, would never happen. Right. That would never happen. That's good. That helps to kind of distinguish where the healthy versus unhealthy. Well, and there is a, there is a healthy yeah, religion, yeah. But, but religion can be used so so unhealthily, absolutely, as well, and it was. It was. It was wielded as a weapon mm-hmm. uh, in, in, in the early part of my life. And so you broke away. You got into your senior year. You lived from place to place based yeah. on people who were willing to help you. Yeah. And then, did you come straight to McMurray when you graduated? I did. Well, kinda. I was living with. I call them a foster family, but they weren't. There was nothing official. They just good enough to take me in. They had had foster kids, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, the Methodist Church there was really just, they went, let's take care of this kid. Mm-hmm. And so I shifted to a couple of different families and they were helping me buy school clothes. And you know, and I had a part-time job, mm-hmm. but I also was involved in school. And they were like, look, you don't need to work 40 hours a week. You want to do theater? You want to get into college? Do that stuff. We'll help you out financially. They had no reason to do it. Mm-hmm. There's, there's, they didn't get anything out of it. It was yeah. still amazing to me to think about how many people were so generous? That is so. They powerful. bought me school clothes and, and and they helped me apply for a school. But the the foster family I was with, I say foster family, they weren't. But the family I was with at the time went, "We're going to go to college." And I said, "Well, I'm thinking about applying for this and that." And they, no, 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 you're not going to Texas Tech. Mm-hmm. You're a wild child, or you're going to be a wild child. You need to go to a small school. You're going to McMurray. That's it. I know you well enough to know they were right. They were dead right. I mean, that's what happens. You hold a spring down. Right. And you hold it down long enough and let it go. If you just let it go, it's going to go crazy. And that's exactly what happened. I Man, I, and I don't regret it. I mean, I just, I was living my life. Uh-huh. Figuring out life. And, and I had to go at my own pace. And my pace went from zero to one mile an hour from zero to 17 years old. And then from 17 to, to, to 18, it went, you know, a thousand miles an hour. Uh-huh. I did everything. Um, wow. And that's okay. You know, yeah. I experienced and experimented and uh-huh. and that's okay too. Yeah. And you got to forgive yourself for the mistakes you make too. Right. It's a journey. And, you know, that was a real, I love the analogy that you made of like holding a spring down and then you let it 
let it up. And I think of that just even as a parent now, like trying to balance the amount of control I exert over my children versus, you know, my, my son's getting to the age. Now we had a conversation just the other night where I said, I cannot forevermore make decisions yeah. for you, but I am going to challenge you as a parent. Cause he's at that age where like, we don't know what we're talking about. We all parents are stupid. God <laughs> right? bless. We were never his age. We don't know. Or yeah. when we were, times are different now. So we couldn't possibly understand. And there's a tendency as a parent to want to hold them down, to keep them safe, to sure. hold them, to like make the right decisions for them because they're not smart enough to make them on their own. But I was just trying to get him to start thinking about, hey, where could I better myself. I wasn't telling him what area it needed to be or anything. And he kind of received it as that I was putting a whole lot of pressure on him to come up with something that, and, and I said, but I, I'm your parent and I can't make you set goals and I don't want you to adopt my goals for you. I need you to start looking at things and saying, where do I want to get better? And what does that look like? And then how can I support you if I feel like it's a, you know, a viable direction? So when I say that his goals, as long as they're a viable option, what I'm saying is as long as his goals are not going to be something that's hurting himself or hurting somebody else. Yeah. You know, not telling him no, but set some goals. I want to hear where you're trying to better yourself. And so... I just, I don't know. Does that resonate with you at all? Of course. With kind of how you, well, yeah. You talk about control. And, and, I, and I, of course, in my memory, and who knows how good my memory is? Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be real frank. That's not how memory works. It is. Something so happens. Right. And, it, and then when you relive it or rethink it, you've re-imprinted that memory over the old memory. Mm-hmm. So who knows exactly what happened? I'm not going to pretend that I was a saint and everything was exactly the way I remember it all. That is I'm so not. important right there to acknowledge that our memories get a little bit skewed but they as have we go to. along. They mm-hmm. have to. That's just, hey, our me- we're not that smart. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we're just, we can't hold it all in. Mm-hmm. Um, so we have to re-imprint a memory. But I do know this. I do know that as a father of a 10-year-old girl, some of those traits are in me too. And I have to fight them day in and day out. I don't want to control. Mm-hmm. Don't want to be too controlling. Of course, you have to be controlled. I don't want her to get in a hot, you know, get in a bathtub that's two hundred degrees. Mm-hmm. You know, you have to have some level of control. Mm-hmm. So I, I get where you're coming from, but it, and it's an age old battle that yeah. every parent has to deal with. You know, you want your kid to grow up and 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 exceed, but that involves you letting them go. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, you're right. It is just such a, there's a really delicate tension. So your family said. You're going to McMurray. McMurray is a private university. So it's more expensive. I'm just going with some practicalities. Yeah. It's more expensive. You, uh, you're emancipated. So you could probably qualify for some grants. Yeah. I suspect. I did. But when you first looked at that, was there a part of you that went like, this is impossible? Or was there ever any kind of mindset that you had to overcome with that? Or you just went like, okay. Uh-uh. I, you know, I had, when you wait until you're 16 to even conceive of the idea of going to college, 
It all just gets thrust on you so fast. And when no one in your family has ever gone to college and everyone told you it's the worst possible thing you can do because you're going to be around the world and the Satan is everywhere and it's just the worst thing you can do. So not only was it not possible, it was the worst thing I could possibly do. So just changing my man- mindset, mm-hmm. I felt like was a victory. Mm-hmm. Money, didn't care. Mm-hmm. I just was going to graduate. Mm-hmm. That was it. Mm-hmm. I didn't care. I just was... I was going to get into a school and I was going to graduate. And I hate to say it, but sometimes you just have to make your priorities what they are. And where I was mentally and where I had no family, all I cared about was getting in and finishing. Mm -hmm. I'll figure the rest out later. And it happened to be that I finally paid off my loans 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. I was in my 30s when I paid off my loans. I don't care. I got my degree. I don't regret it one bit. And of course, you know, I probably would have gotten gotten out a lot cheaper had I done it in four years. (laughs) Probably would have gotten out a lot cheaper if I hadn't made the bad dean's list a couple of times. <laughs> but again, I, I don't regret one bit of it. It just is what it is. And mm-hmm. I'm and I did it. I went to college when no one else in the family did, even if I had to leave them to get there. So let's talk about theater for a second, because you said that you walked into school that day and your theater teacher was the one yeah. who greeted you. Your theater teacher also let you move in. He took you in. Yeah. Were you involved in theater much before that? Because it, I, I just envision it being something that your parents would have been against, but maybe not. They had, the Jehovah's Witnesses didn't believe in any extracurricular activities whatsoever. So mm-hmm. you couldn't be on any teams. Mm-hmm. And so you weren't, you know, you didn't play football or baseball. And that was, and I, I went to a little school, 2A, mm-hmm. and I was six foot four. So you can imagine the football coaches were drooling over that guy. Mm -hmm. I mean, not that I was athletic, but hey, he's tall. Mm -hmm. He's the tallest guy in the entire school. Let's let's get him on the football team. They would send handwritten letters. Uh It just met. It was met with nothing. That wasn't going to happen. So extracurricular activities weren't weren't allowed. But pay Caesar's things to Caesar's and God's things to God is in the Bible, and they believe that the law says you have to go to school. You have to go to school. And while I was there for those seven periods a day, I could take classes. They encouraged me to take classes that would behoove me in life. Mm-hmm. So they made me take auto mechanics. They made me take home ec. Mm-hmm. They made me take, which I don't regret either. I mean, it was nice yeah. to learn some of those lessons. Yeah. I understand what a V8 is. Mm-hmm. You know, those were all possible positive things. But I did have a little bit of leeway about what I wanted to do with my electives. And I immediately figured theater was fun. Mm -hmm. So I was involved in that ever since I could take it as an elective. So Mm -hmm. from about seventh or eighth grade on, Mm -hmm. I did it. But I never got to do the plays. I never got to do any of that because that was after school or before school. So I was involved in theater from the outside, which probably made me want to do it more. Yeah. You know, I thought I'm as good as that kid and he got to play the lead just because he could audition and I couldn't. Yeah, that's mind boggling to me. And I love to hear that because I look at just how talented you are. And when I went into McMurray, I came into McMurray and it was like the days of like you and Nikki and Jay and, (laughs) and, and James Burnson, Brandon Ray. I mean, I feel like this whole group that I got to somehow get to be a part of was such in a league of their own when it comes to talent. I really do. I think it's rare. And especially, I think there are so many talented people, but I'm, maybe I'm biased because I grew up with y'all. <laughs> but Or I say grew up, but you do a lot of growing up in college. Sure so that's what I mean. And so I was just like, oh, I want to be them when I grow up. So talented and raw on stage. And it just, I mean, maybe some of your background helped you to do that. So you didn't 
start actually performing in the shows until your senior year or when you went to McMurray? Senior year in high school. Okay. Um, so senior year hit and I was going to do everything that I wasn't allowed to do. Mm-hmm. So I, I was I, I got involved in persuasive extemp UIL stuff. I went to state. I got involved in prose UIL. Went to state finals on that. Um, I got involved in one act play my senior year. We went to regionals and were state alternate, mm-hmm. uh, which is the furthest our school had ever gone or went afterwards. Um, so it was involved in in everything I could possibly could. We did. We were at a at a speech tournament every other weekend all the way through my senior year. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I crammed in four years worth of high school extracurricular activities in one year and wow. loved it. Absolutely loved it. And what did you discover about yourself during that time that maybe you hadn't discovered before? Self-confidence. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I was confident enough to make the decision that I was going to leave and just see what happened. Uh, and that, that took a lot of confidence and ignorance. Mm-hmm. Confidence sometimes has ignorance right with it where you have to go, you know what, I'm going to put out the things in my brain that know that, you know, you may just not have a place to stay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to put that out of my brain and just hope that it works out. Mm-hmm. Sometimes you have to gamble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm still kind of surprised that I was 17 years old and, and made the right decision, even though it involved gambling, because I didn't know what was going to happen or where I was going to land. I was listening to a podcast just this morning and the guy that was talking made the remark. He said, I've always told everyone, I'm just not smart enough to calculate my risks. I just don't, like he is a good, I mean, he's a very successful person. And that's the one thing that he said, people are always like, well, aren't you calculating the risk? Aren't you? And I feel like that ignorance piece is what you're talking about. it, It sounds like that's not, you're not so much calculating your risk as you are just living authentically in what you love and like whatever happens is going to well, happen. You got nothing to lose. You know, mm-hmm. I, I owned a box, a cardboard box with, you know, a couple of pair of jeans and, and a pillow. Yeah. You know, n- Hannah, you got a nice house. So do I. I've got a kid uh-huh. and a family. So those, you don't gamble the same way at 48 years old as you do at, at 17. There's more on the line. A lot more. Yeah. Let's fast forward. You get through McMurray. Mm-hmm. You graduated. Mm-hmm. How did that feel? Oh, awesome. It took six years. Mm-hmm. It was about my sophomore or junior year that a couple of us, Trace Michaels or Trace Bailey at the time, uh, a student in the theater department and myself, both got really involved in radio. Mm-hmm. So we had full-time jobs in radio. We were disc jockeys at Power 103 and then at Rock 108. I forgot Q100. you were a disc jockey. And, and that, but those were full-time jobs. So, uh-huh. so the last three years in college... I could barely get through the school because I had my own career going. Mm-hmm. And that was uh, that made it difficult. So by the time I graduated, I wasn't going to give up. It, I, I had six full years of school. Mm-hmm. Now, granted, some of the semesters might have been six hours because of just the amount of work I had with the jobs that I had. And I was still doing theater. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you still are. doing shows, several shows every year. Um, it, it was just a nonstop kind of thing. But when I finally walked the stage... Uh, the amount of pride was it was palpable. I uh, I did it. Yeah. And it, it took forever, and I had to. In those last couple of years, you worry if it's going to happen. Right. You know, yeah. especially when you have a career that's going pretty well. So why would you finish? That's well, because what I'm going to do it. Because that was the goal. Mm-hmm. Because no matter what, that's going to happen. Did you ever have an end game in mind besides 
finishing what yeah. finishing what was your goal where well, were you it changed headed? my roommate in college for a while was daniel silvis i don't know if you remember he, i he do was older remember than him yeah i was in a play at mcmurray uh-huh. when i was in fifth grade uh and so i got in that show i was in that show as a fifth grader with like trace and daniel so i knew them and yeah. i remember them obviously because i'm this little like 11 year old girl who's just like, I'm in this play with all these college kids, you know, and, and or college adults. And so I know who he is yeah. and just from being in that theater scene yeah. from a young age. So, yeah. So go ahead. I, do you live uh, no, with he, he, Yeah, he did. He, he and I lived together technically for a year, but not really, really it was a couple of months. He was one year older and, um, he, he hit it. He, he had been at school for a couple of years and summer came around and he said, I'm not going to stick around. I'm going to go audition. And he was written up in People Magazine. He was one of the finalists to, the, for, the, I believe that they were, CBS was doing a TV movie of the Lucille Ball story. And he was one of the three finalists to play Desi Arnaz. Wow. And uh, he was a great actor. Um, and I, that was it. Just, you know, getting that notoriety. He didn't get the role, but getting that notoriety was enough for him to go, I'm going to give it a go. So he moved to L.A., and uh, immediately got a great plum roll uh, for a one line in an MCI commercial. I don't know if you remember when AT&T split up and there was Sprint and MCI and AT&T. Mm-hmm. And he had this ad and he had like one line. Uh-huh. I don't remember what it was, but it was like, hello. And uh, But that ad aired for like two or three years. So he got residual checks that paid him like 40000 a year. Amazing. Yeah. So he's just kicking butt. And then within a few months, he lands a recurring role on the original Beverly Hills 90210. Mm-hmm. Yep. He he lands a couple of roles in, in some movies. You know, the small, maybe a line, maybe just an appearance playing basketball with a big star. Uh, that was one of them. But but that's making it. That's I have a, making it. I have a picture. I See, now I feel so full of pride because I have a picture of him like, you know, trying to tie me to some railroad tracks at Dirty Work at the Crossroads when I was 11 years old. And <laughs> that's, how, that's how I remember him. That's how you remember and him. So, yeah, but, it, but that's making it. Like you it said. is making it. And you and I just talked about, you know, risking. And uh, and I realized by the time I was 20 and he came back and we're, we're you know, we're uh, having a talk and, and figuring it all out, I realized him making it is a nightmare that I could never live. Okay. Because he had a job on that MCI. It was one day's work. But he didn't have anything else for six months. Mm-hmm. And I sat there thinking, what would my mind do to me if I'm living in a car, e- even if I'm getting a paycheck, mm-hmm. but I'm living in LA and I don't have a job for six more months. How does that work? Mm-hmm. How do you do that? And I realized I'm not that guy. I'm never going to be that guy. I'm going to need to get a paycheck every two weeks uh-huh. and know that my future is at least somewhat set. So Certainly. I was able to take that chance, but not at that point. Okay. And it was very obvious to me. It wasn't a sad thing. It was a, oh no, I'm not doing that. Okay. Because no matter how successful you are, I mean, I, I, I mean you think about the number of actors that are huge. They, they don't go immediately from, very few go immediately from one role to the next. Mm-hmm. And the thought of me not having a job for six months or three months or a week mm-hmm. would blows my mind. Mm-hmm. could never happen. Yeah. So I think it's Tony Robbins talks about that we all have certain human needs. Mm-hmm. Um, there's six human needs that he's kind of identified. And the first two that he mentions, because they're kind of in contrast to one another, but it's that we as humans have a need for certainty and we have a need 
for uncertainty. And so certainty is what you're talking about. Like yeah. you have yeah. a need on some level of the certainty and maybe, you know, Daniel's getting his need for certainty met some other way because otherwise he's going to feel unfulfilled in that area. Yeah. You've got to have this constant kind of give and take of certainty versus uncertainty in your life. Does that sound like kind that of what sounds that sounds fair? Yeah. You know, and, and I think that a lot of the people that are able to just go, I'm going to go. Well, they have certainty in that their parents are back home going, I support you. If you need help, I'm going to be there. So, so that certainty is there for some people and they're able to move to New York and get an apartment and give it a go for a year or two. Mm -hmm. That's a good, that's an interesting point that I hadn't thought of, but I'm sure that that figured into it too going, well, I don't have anybody, I don't have, there's no, there's no fallback. Right. You know, there's nowhere else to land at this point. Yes. That's very good. So you graduated, you continued as a DJ and mm -hmm. then you went like around 2000 or so, or 2000, was it 2001, 2000 that you went to work for K-Texas? Yes. Yeah. Uh, so I worked in radio and then uh, immediately um, <laughs> went from disc jockey to owning my own talk show. Mm -hmm. uh, and so I did that. It was a sports talk show. I did that for about two hours a day for George in the Jungle for about six years, I think, if I remember correctly. And somewhere around 2000, K-Texas reached out and went, Hey, they, they had me on their show frequently to talk about sports. Mm -hmm. And they said, you know, we've got an opening for a weekend sports anchor. Why don't you come be that guy? And I went, awesome. And I can still do my job. So I was doing both. I had part-time uh, there and then full-time or part-time too at the radio show. Uh, and then that lasted for six or nine months. And they went, why don't you come full-time? Uh -huh. So I did that. Uh, within a year or two, they quickly discovered this guy has a degree in politics He's really involved in news, loved writing, mm -hmm. and and as much as I liked sports, I was more interested in news the whole time. Okay, I volunteered on election night. I was the guy who called in results from the from the Taylor County Plaza. Love news, so I got involved in that, and I spent about eighteen years doing news. Mm -hmm. um, adored news. I think sometimes people have a desire to do something for a living that matters, mm -hmm. and not that theater doesn't matter. It does. Mm -hmm. But when you're on the air and you're telling people there's a tornado coming to your neighborhood, get down. Mm -hmm. Or there is crime in your neighborhood, let's talk about how that works. Or there is a politician who is embezzling funds, it's our job to expose that person. Mm -hmm. That felt like a job that mattered mm -hmm. and it created an intense source of pride. And if anybody knows that, it would be you because I'm sure that you and your husband have this great pride knowing your husband's out there saving somebody's life. Absolutely. That 18 years was really amazing. Mm -hmm. I don't regret it or miss it, but it was amazing. Mm -hmm. Awesome. So you're back in the world of theater and yeah. all, all those things with the historic Paramount Theater in Abilene. Yeah. Tell me about how that transition came along and how you processed the decision? Uh, it, was a, it was a leap. Um, I, I, my wife and I always knew that I was going to retire from K-Texas. Always. I was going to stay a, a news anchor until I died. If you, if you spent 16 years earning the position of being main anchor, maybe 15, and then finally got it, and I thought, well, I'm going to hang on to it until I'm in my 60s or 70s, mm -hmm. you know? I mean... That's how it works in towns. You get to be the main anchor and you stay there. Mm -hmm. um, but someone came in and bought K-Texas. And it was a company that I knew very well. Mm -hmm. And uh, the day I heard they were buying us, 
uh, I went back to my wife that night and I said, we're out. I'm out. Okay. And she went, what? And I said, I am not going to work for those guys. Mm-hmm. Um, so we've, we figured something out and, uh, within a few weeks, we, we, we found a, we found something and, uh, it's still shocking that it happened that quick. Mm-hmm. It's shocking that it was something that could not have made me happier. The Paramount was my favorite place on the face of the earth. Mm-hmm. I adored that place. Betty Huckel is one of my favorite people that ever walked the face of this earth. Me too. Yeah. I know. And, yeah. and here I am working in my favorite place with some of my favorite people doing my favorite thing. Mm-hmm. So, man, talk about making it an easier transition to give out the thing you thought you were going to do for the rest of your life. That made it exciting and awesome and wonderful. And I have enjoyed my time at the Paramount like nobody's business. I think it's encouraging also to hear that you had a plan in mind, things changed, and you didn't just sit and mope. You went, this isn't going to work, and you made a decision to say, this is going to, something's got to give, something's got to change, and then the doors opened, right? you're, You're right. But there was time to mope. So forgive yourself if you give yourself time to mope. Okay. And I did. Yeah. I, it's not fair that my job that I finally earned is changing on me and I don't want to do it anymore. Yeah. And it made me upset for a little while. Yeah. Uh, but at some point, I this, let's figure this out. Let's figure this mm-hmm. out. And, you know, one thought was, do we move? Do I go be a, an anchor in another town? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and Sydney, you know, I mean, you're in it together as a family and. And after a while, she said, I love it here. I don't, I don't want to leave Abilene. I, she has a great job and, and gets to work and in the she, arts. And she's she, so plugged she in. She And she's it. so influential. Yeah. And, yeah. And, and I realized, too, my roots are very deep here. So are my roots deeper for the town or are they deeper for the job that I had? Mm-hmm. And it seemed pretty obvious that that was a wake-up call from Sydney. I need to give up my job. I don't need to give up the town. Mm-hmm. Um, so I didn't. So I changed careers. It's really important to recognize that because for some people it is the career that's the most important thing. So being cognizant enough to step back and reflect, why are the arts important? Talk about nuance. Mm -hmm. Um, They're different for everybody. They're an outlet. They are a time to shine Um, for little girls and boys. It is a time to develop self-esteem encourage. Uh, sometimes it's a time to develop friendships. Uh, maybe, maybe you don't fit in. Maybe you're a bit of a wallflower and you don't fit in with the football crowd or the cheerleader crowd. Mm. It can be a little bit of difference for everybody, but ultimately art brings this sense of joy and wonderment that can't be substituted for. And if the pandemic has taught us anything, that's that's one of the big lessons. Mm-hmm. I mean, we've all sat down and what's gotten us through? Netflix. Well, what is that? It's art. Mm-hmm. We're watching movies and TV shows and stories. We're listening to albums. We're rediscovering the, the albums of our youth. Mm-hmm. We are looking at art. We are absorbing it all. And it's what has gotten us through the boredom of sitting in quarantine for two months in our homes. Mm-hmm. Art is... Art is so much of our life, but it's everything that makes it good. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I, I'm, and, and artists can be restaurants. They, you know, they, oh, it, it can be all kinds of things. But it's important for that reason. It is what makes us want to keep going. Mm-hmm. That's so good. I just wanted to hear your answer on that because I knew it's in there, and it is very nuanced. You know, you hit 
the nail on the head with one of the things that that I find for it to be so important, which is the confidence piece, the self-esteem piece. I've watched theater in particular change my son's confidence like that. I watched it from your son too. You saw him. I saw it. It was amazing. When people have that mark of like high performance on them, he has a mark of high performance, but it doesn't fit the mold of public school. So like now he does his little YouTube channel and that kid is devout. He posts every single day. He makes sure he problem solves. He throws fits when he can't get the technology to work right. Like most adults do too once in a while. Maybe not. Maybe just me. But anyway, so and then he, but he's devoted to that and he's got this obsessive mind And when he gets on one thing, he doesn't know how to think about something else. And so that actually creates some problems socially sometimes. It creates, but then you get him in the element of being on stage. And I just saw his confidence go through the roof. He, and he can sing. He has like a really raw, outstanding singing voice that he would not embrace until I talked him into doing that show last January. And after that, he went and he got cast as Edna Turnblad and and they didn't get to do the show because of the pandemic but what a confidence boost that was for him it helped him have an outlet where like you said he's different than some of the other kids but he doesn't have to be the athlete he loves soccer he loved soccer for a while but he lost his passion for it he was very talented but he doesn't like that and so helping him to go like Dude, it's okay if this is your thing over here, but pick a thing and like give yourself fully to it. And when it gets hard, keep going because that's right. That you can't just that's rely on talent. You, you have push to push through. through the hard. Yeah, mm-hmm. theater for that show, Frozen Junior, mm-hmm. the the January show at the Paramount, three sold out performances. That's great, but really, what what I took from it was that group of fifty, sixty kids showed up two months beforehand Mm -hmm. and they started doing the work and they were there every day. They were learning their parts. They were learning the dances. They were learning the songs. It, they came together as a group two months later, they put in dozens and dozens and dozens of hours together Mm -hmm. and they have to face the fact that they're going to be in front of sold out crowds at the Paramount for three nights in a row. Mm -hmm. And they had the gumption to get up there and walk out on the stage in through sheer terror. Mm-hmm. And they good. won. They won. Mm-hmm. They won. All those kids are winners. Mm-hmm. And and this is the reason I love sports. It's the same thing. Mm-hmm. You started out in football season. You went through two-a-days. You put on the pads. You went and got in the game. Whether you won or lost, it doesn't matter. You got out there. Mm-hmm. You you learned and did, did everything else with the other 10 people on the field. It is that sense of accomplishment at the football stadium or in or on the stage and there's millions of other I'm sure activities that are they have the same amount of accomplishment you but show you up you show yeah. up in spite of fear in spite of potential for quote unquote failure right and you keep doing it and keep doing it and they're heroes and those you, little kids were heroes you know and the thing also that they learned through that this is also a point that I was going to get to with my son is my son 
sits in class and I have parent meetings because he supposedly has such a hard time with authority and with discipline. And then he goes to a, to a scenario like that. And all I get from these people in authority and directors is this feedback of like, Jonah is so disciplined. He's such a leader. He is so focused. And how wonderful for him to start getting the and wonderful for me as a mom to recognize he's just not in his element somewhere else and we do have to learn some of the that discipline sure and to transfer it over but how much better is it to transfer your discipline once you have an area that you're actually enjoying to build that discipline and then you can transfer it over it's really hard to build discipline in an environment that you kind of hate. Does that make sense? It does. So I would agree with that, I think. Yeah. So it's just been a wonderful outlet for him. I'm so thankful for the Paramount. I did shows at the Paramount as a kid as well. I was in the best Christmas pageant ever with Betty. (laughs) (laughs) Betty was my mama. (laughs) Or she wasn't my mama. She was the mama of the play. But yeah, she's played my mom before though. We did like, um, what is it, the Sanders family and the oh, yeah, smoke on that. the mountain? Smoke I on the mountain. I saw you in that. That was great. It's so fun. Yeah, yeah. That's probably about the last show I did. I did a show with the Paramount at um, the Mill. Yes, Robert Bridegroom. Robert Bridegroom. Yeah. So while we're on the Paramount for a minute, can you tell people how to get to the Paramount page and what are some of the services that y'all offer there? We're the coolest business. It's the coolest business because it's different every day. But we're at 352 Cypress Street. Our, our address is ParamountAbilene.com. Real simple. Or just Google Paramount and the word Abilene. Mm-hmm. Take a look at the photos. It's just a stunning place. And if you haven't been in, uh, it, it really is just unbelievable that it's in Abilene. Mm-hmm. Uh, and now that I'm part of that world, the historic theater world, and go to conventions, people are blown away that this theater somehow survived. Not only survived, it's better than it was when it was built. Because mm-hmm. it was built as just a movie theater. Mm-hmm. Now it's got fly rail systems and lights and sound and backstage, all those green all those green rooms and dressing rooms, all that was added in the 80s. Mm-hmm. None of that stuff was there when it was built. Mm-hmm. This theater is even better than it was. And it's stunning that it's in Abilene. And it maintains the historical integrity, though. Oh, absolutely. The, yeah. If you're sitting in the audience, it looks like it would have looked in 1930. Of course, the projector's... Mm-hmm. Blu-ray as opposed to, or uh, 4K as opposed to, yeah. you know, a real projector. Things have changed technology-wise, but it would feel the same. The same, you know, st- clouds that move over the ceiling, the same stars that blink. It's the same apparatus that does that. It's the same color neon. The mm-hmm. seats are similar to the way they were. It was the same color. It's not even paint in there. It's a. It was mixed when they put the plaster up. It looked the same as it did then. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you go backstage and when you're out from where the audience is, that's when you realize this place is different. Mm-hmm. And it is improved. And it is it is not just a movie theater. We will do about 25 movies in a typical non-pandemic year. But not only are we... That's about a third of what we do. The other third is we put on shows. We just talked about Frozen Junior. We do a cabaret. We're doing one in September. Uh, we do a summer musical for... We had done it 27 years in a row. Mm-hmm. This last one obviously was canceled. We do a fall play. And that's the second third of what we do. The third third we do is we're 
the home of so many organizations. So if you're the Celebration Singers or the, uh, the, the, the Children's Performing Arts Series or Abilene Ballet Theater, or the list goes on and on and on, and I'm sorry if I left your name off, you're, we're your home. Mm-hmm. So when you guys produce a show, you produce it there. So we're a rental facility. Mm-hmm. Uh, in all, and, and then we're trying to grow in other ways. Last year, right before the pandemic hit, we were putting on concerts or helping people bring concerts to town, and they were bringing in great crowds. We brought a, a Christian act in that had huge audience. We brought in a country act. B.J. Thomas came in, and there was like 800 people in the in the audience mm-hmm. here. And but it was it was stunning to see. The truth of the matter is, it's a great business because it does so much. It's the mm-hmm. only way you could have a theater like that in Abilene. Is it has to be adaptable and be able to do all kinds of different things. We can't just do movies, can't just do theater because the the town can't support that 52 weeks a year. Mm -hmm. So we got to do everything and we do. So what have y'all done to pivot during (sighs) the pandemic? Well, take advice from good people. Um, The first thing we did was we immediately realized we have a voice. And so we started making that center marquee, Mm -hmm. an idea to say things to people. You're going to be okay. This is going to be okay. Be kind to each other. Um, uh, You know, just whatever we could put up there. People were crazy scared and and sad and depressed. And and I understand. So we thought we can't be open. We can at least use that for, for messaging. And then we went, what, what can, what can we do to make money? And I got a call from a friend or text uh, late at night on a Saturday and he went, have you guys thought about selling popcorn out front? I love it. And, and so we did. So we, 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 we spent all week. It takes all week to bag hundreds of bags of popcorn because they're equal to two and a half large buckets. Mm-hmm. And we sell them out front. People line up all the way down North First and we sell popcorn out the front of the building. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's brought in some revenue. Mm-hmm. We are showing our first film since the pandemic. Uh, March 8th was our last film. Uh, we're starting to show some summer family films. Mm-hmm. So I, we're going to have a quarter of an audience. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Mm-hmm. We're going to just do it as we can, be patient, mm-hmm. and uh, be as safe as we possibly can. Mm-hmm. That's so good. That's how we're pivoting. But we've learned a lot. One thing we learned is that people like our popcorn. You're not joking. It <laughs> no. sells out every time. Every time I see that it's uh, that you're popping popcorn, that you're selling popcorn, I see it just in time to be like, oh, I should go do popcorn. And then I see like, oh, we're sold out, guys. So uh, I got to pay closer attention. I need to put myself on a notification list. (laughs) I told you a little bit about the fact that this is a um, podcast about perfectionism. Uh And are you a perfectionist? In some ways, yes. How so? I'm a people pleaser. Okay. And that has really helped me with donors. Sure. Because A, I'm interested in what they tell me, but B, I, I, I do. I want to do. I want to listen to their advice. Mm-hmm. And I want to be able to come back to them and go, you had a really interesting point and we did that. And I want you to know that. And it's mm-hmm. making a difference. But there's a lot of people that care about the Paramount that requires a lot of attention. I do think perfectionism has helped me in that. Okay. Um, I'm not a perfect person, nor even, uh, even close. But messaging is, is something that I try to be close to perfect as, as I possibly can mm-hmm. uh, because it's important. How do you achieve that? Does it ever, do you ever get paralyzed in that process of no. making sure that your message is... No, you just heard me talk. It's because I believe in it. Mm-hmm. Now, and no offense to any other salesperson, because in a, in a way it's a sales job. Mm-hmm. Being the executive director of a nonprofit, and you've worked for a nonprofit, it is mm-hmm. a sales job. Absolutely. But it's easy for me because I'm not asking you to spend money so I can make money. I'm asking you to support something I believe in. So good. That's a very good distinction. So when I ask for money, I'm not asking for me. Mm -hmm. I'm asking for this theater 
I'm asking for the kids that are on stage. I'm asking for some old lady that wants to come see a movie again. You know, there's just a, there's a million different ways that we're asking, but I'm not asking for me. And so for me, messaging got real simple when it wasn't about me anymore. It's about the theater. Mm-hmm. And so I can tell you about the theater all day long, and I can tell you that you need to come buy tickets, and I don't feel any guilt about it at all. It's that's, It's been an easy messaging yeah, for me. That's and, great. And part of it is people love the place. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, that, help, that helps. People are truly interested, a lot of them, when you talk about the Paramount, because they like it. Mm-hmm. And they part of their heart mm-hmm. is there. Yeah. How has being a parent been a game changer for you? Being a parent is all consuming. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's, it, it's not just a game changer. It, no, that's exactly what it is. It's a complete, <laughs> utter and total game change. Um, you, you can't be as selfish mm-hmm. uh, and it's okay to be selfish. And so I, I didn't get married till 30, 30, 31 because I was selfish. Mm-hmm. I wanted to experience things and put my career first. And so marriage came when I was ready. And that 31 was about as early as I could say I was ready. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the same thing for kids. We had Julia at 38 years old mm-hmm. when she was born because I knew that was going to be a game. I was wise enough at 38 to know this is going to be a big deal. Uh, and it has. It, it's been an absolute game changer. It's impossible to know how much you love someone until you have a kid. And, and I don't mean that. I love my wife. Of course. But there is just, there's something different about it. I, I, marriages are give and take. Mm-hmm. Sometimes your kid doesn't give you anything. I, right. You know? It's, like, it's definitely like, uh, it is, I will definitely say like when I had my son, who's my oldest, and again, when I had my daughter, there is just something the moment you lay eyes. And I think the same thing happens when you adopt or, you know, yeah, that it's yeah. like the moment, it's like there's some thing where you're like, I did not know my heart had the capacity to love like this. And then you're right. It's like, I'm going to keep pouring into this being that sometimes has decided that I am the biggest screw up <laughs> on the planet. And sometimes I live up to that and I am the biggest <laughs> screw up on the planet. But everything that I do is motivated, whether my execution of what I'm trying to get is correct or not. Sometimes I screw it up so bad, but my heart is always coming from a place of, I want you to have success and I want you to be loved and to love well and to and to know how to function in life in a way that's gonna get you the best that you deserve in life just for being alive. Yeah. You know? Isn't it, it crazy? It is. Yeah. They didn't do anything to earn your love. Nothing. Mm-mm. Those kids don't do anything at all. To, I mean, of course they do. But mm-hmm. They don't have to. Mm-mm. They don't have to do anything. It's it's mind-boggling. Yet, when Julia was born, like any other kid, um, uh, was it Hendrick? And they hand the baby to you. And, and I walked out there with this baby. And, you know, I've had this baby in my arm for 10 seconds. And I look up at my dad and my sister, new dad, new sister, mm-hmm. uh, and they're just emotional. And I, I, I bawled. I just mm-hmm. stood there bawling. I've had this kid for 10 seconds. Mm-hmm. And that was when, oh, because you do doubt. You do doubt when you're about to be a parent. You go, mm-hmm. what if I don't like being a parent? What if, what if, right. what if, what if it's hard to commit to doing this? 
That can, kid was one minute old, and I was like, "Now nah, I got no doubts." Right. No doubts. Can I? Can I keep this thing alive? Well, yeah. Can that I, was <laughs> like, and and then am I gonna like it? <laughs> and then you, it's like, oh, this is not an it anymore. This is not some concept no. anymore. Yeah. Oh gosh. And we took it seriously. You know what? That's the beauty of being thirty-eight years old. I mean, the bad thing is you can't pick them up because your back's bad. But the good news is <laughs> you take it so seriously. So I went. I went to the lactation classes. Uh-huh. I went to every childbirth class. I went to every gynecological appointment she could with uh-huh. you know with Dr. Mascaro. I was at every single one but one, I think, um, because I wanted to be a part of it. Mm-hmm. And that's the beauty of being an old man having a kid, 38 mm-hmm. years old. Um, so, yeah, I can say that I was fully invested. And I can say that I read books. Mm-hmm. I watched TV shows about documentaries about parenting. Uh-huh. I went to all the classes and it meant absolutely zero. <laughs> pretty much. I mean, I remember I knew how to change the diaper uh-huh. and swaddle the kid. Uh-huh. But that was about all that really mattered that I learned. Everything else was just, oh, God, what I hope I, I keep it alive. Yes. Yes. So much. Isn't it amazing? It's mm. so fun. Is there anything you're afraid of? You know, I have fears. But now that I think about it, I think I have a better grasp of my fears and putting them behind me than most people do. Okay. I, I just think that I don't get shackled by fear as much as a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. So when I say I have fears, I do. But I think them through, I talk them through, I, I talk myself up and I tackle them. I'm not afraid to give speeches. I'm not afraid to get on TV. I'm not afraid to get on stage. Of course that fear is there. That's what makes you good at it. Mm-hmm. If that fear isn't biting underneath the whole time, then what's the point of doing theater? I mean, mm-hmm. I hate to say it, but that's part of it is overcoming. Mm-hmm. We're all attracted by the overcoming. So, I, you know, yeah, we all have fears, but I, I do think that it's one of my good qualities is that I, I'm able to mm-hmm. get past the fear better than the average. Can you think of where that might have come from? Doing it early. Mm-hmm. Yeah, kicking its butt early. Yeah. I, I committed at 17, never looked back, never was concerned, um, just knew it was going to work no matter what, and told myself that no matter what. Probably ignorantly, pr- it could very well have gone wrong, mm-hmm. and I could be telling a different story. Yeah. Uh, but We all have those, though. We, there are so many places where we could have taken a turn yeah. and been on the completely different path. And it, it, there's always just that one thing that could have been different. Thank goodness it went the way it did. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that there are a lot of people that could stand to go for a two mile walk. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Like that. And yeah. to listen to themselves to listen to, and to answer it. And I think you're right that I wonder if there's a part of you that you conquered it maybe before you even had enough messages from the world to tell you to be afraid yeah i think that's fair and then you look at that and you're like man if i could do that what do i have to be afraid of yeah 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 if i can do that everything else is easy Mm -hmm. and uh, and i did tell myself that and uh and it was a sheltered life so when i finally came out i wasn't scared to try things then either Mm -hmm. even though clearly i was behind the curve for most Mm -hmm. kids and I didn't seem to care. I was like, whatever, fine, whatever. Uh-huh. It'll be cool. What current learning curve are you in? We all need to continue to to, to, to learn and grow. I'm a avid reader. I, not one night goes by without me picking up a novel, 
pick up nonfiction, read an hour every night. It's mm-hmm. every night. And it's been that way for many years. I try to pick up all the Pulitzer winners mm-hmm. to see what's going on. Why did that win? Oh my God, because that was thought provoking. I try to grow my mind in that way. Okay. I do find things that I focus on that I want to be an expert at. Uh, for, for instance, of all things right now, it's soccer. Oh, which oh, makes fun. no sense You've whatsoever. You've never had interest in it before? Never and played. Just no, I used to hate it. I used to make fun of it on my talk show. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I fell in love with it. And uh, I'm trying to understand the beautiful game is what it's called. And now I read books about it and watch shows and listen to podcasts and, mm-hmm. and try to understand the game. I just think that you have to constantly stay on the curve until you die. Mm-hmm. Right? I mean, if we're not growing as people, what's the point? Mm-hmm. How do you go about surrounding yourself with the right people that are going to keep you moving forward? That, that's harder to do now than it was. I've worked in a newsroom with 27 journalists or meteorologists. All of them had this innate curiosity. All of them ask hard questions, mm-hmm. um, which, by the way, makes it really tough to be a boss when every one of those reporters is going to ask you the hardest questions. <laughs> you know, But it also prepares you for hard questions. A news anchor needs to know a little bit about everything, mm-hmm. which is what I loved about McMurray and the liberal arts education because mm-hmm. I took English classes and philosophy classes and psychology and political science and, mm-hmm. and, and, and theater Well-rounded. and history, everything. Well, that's great because you had to learn a little bit about everything as a news anchor. So to me, that was why I loved it mm-hmm. because I'm reading a story about what's going on in Libya today. Mm-hmm. Okay, what do I know about Libya? I better do a little research. Mm-hmm. That If you don't have that curiosity, you're not going to be very good at that. And you have to, like you brought up a good point. How are you going to know if something might be a good story if you don't have enough baseline of just some general information? How are you even yeah. going to know to pursue this over here? The perspective. You have to have the perspective. Mm-hmm. You do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so for me, that was very easy at the time. Uh, it's easy now because I'm in a new career. Mm-hmm. I've been there for a little over two years. So I'm still a sponge. Mm-hmm. I don't know near as much as my artistic director or the technical director. Mm-hmm. There's so many more people that, that that work with me know so much more about the building and uh-huh. what we do for a living. Mm-hmm. So now that's fairly easy in that that my learning is listening and, yeah. and just absorbing what's going on around me. One thing I admire about you is that you maintain long-term relationships. I do. My My best friends have been my friends... For 30 years. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like I see y'all, even like the K's, I see you connect with them and um, uh, Bavesh, right? Patel, yeah. My best friend to this day. The guy that picked me up when I moved out. I I did not remember that that's who it was. Yeah. Yes. I I was thinking it was one of... So you met probably Jay at McMurray. No. No, I knew Jay from from Colorado City. We both grew grew up in Colorado City. Okay. Uh, When I was a senior in high school, he was a freshman in high school. Mm-hmm. Um, so there was a little bit of uh, overlap there, but but I just told you about the first Thanksgiving I ever had. It was at his house. Mm-hmm. It was his his mother was uh, also in that Methodist church and uh-huh. said, "Hey, kid, come on over." Okay, so the first Thanksgiving dinner I ever had, Jay was sitting at the other end of the table. So how have you cultivated that over the years? Because you've all gone different directions, and yeah. not everybody is as astute at keeping that close knit. Great. Yeah. Always together. I don't like- deserve any of that praise or any of that credit. Um, uh, sometimes I'm I'm the the dog and the squirrel. Mm-hmm. Whoa, what's going on over there? Uh-huh. Uh, I make new friends too. Yeah. Uh, but you need to have somebody in your friend group who is the uniter. 
Mm-hmm. And and I do. I've, I've Bob Ash. He's six weeks older than me. We've been friends since my goodness, since you know pre-puberty. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back when riding the bus together in sixth grade. Uh, we've been friends since then, and he works at it. It mm-hmm. is work to him to keep us together, and he it's important. Um, and that's good because at times it's important to me too, but then I get distracted by career or like anybody else does. So I'm lucky in that I've got that that cohesive person that keeps our group together. You know what I love too, though, is that you're bringing up the fact that you've got this group and there is a person in the group who... Mm-hmm does the unite or, you know, brings everybody together and yet probably doesn't get his feelings hurt that he's the one who does that. He just does it because that's the role he plays in the group and that's necessary. So (laughs) how do you keep your balance with like personal work? You know, you've got this really public role over here with a lot of responsibility. Then you've got your role as a dad and your role as a husband. Um, and, and if there are any other roles that I'm not really as a performer, but I mean, I don't know that you're doing a whole lot of that right now. Or, I mean, you did a show. Are you, how? Yeah. ACU reached out last spring and, uh, and I don't know that they've done this before. And they said, we want, we, we, you're going to be a guest artist for our show, if you will. And I went, Great, because you know you have to be at ACU to perform in ACU shows. Uh-huh. Uh, I was astounded that they asked me, and I was even more astounded that it was the show that I couldn't wait to see, cool. which was Bright Star by Steve Martin mm-hmm. and Edie Brickell. Uh, I adore those two people, and that musical was, I think it's one of the best musicals in the last 20 years. It just happened to come out the same time that the best musical in the last 20 years came out. So it came out the exact same time as Hamilton. Mm -hmm. And Hamilton won every single award. Mm -hmm. And Bright Star was like, oh, yeah, it's cute. And I get that. I mean, there's only room for one best show in 20 years. Mm -hmm. And it just happened to be that the number two show was really stinking good. Yeah. Uh, also, I say that Color Purple came out the same year, mm-hmm. and that's a fabulous musical. Mm-hmm. But I got a chance to do Bright Star, and uh, I played the bad guy, um, which is one of my roles that I enjoy doing. Uh-huh. Uh, but it was pretty. It was pretty amazing. the The, the musical is interesting. Um, it's written by Steve Martin and Edie Brickell. Of course, Steve Martin has written many a play, uh, Picasso at the Lapine Agile, which is brilliant. Uh, he's this great writer, very comic, very natural. The dialogue was fabulous. You don't see that in musicals. Mm-hmm. Usually it's throwaway dialogue in between two songs. Mm-hmm. Not in this case. The dialogue was better than the music. But the music was written by him and Edie Brickell. So it was fabulous. It was, you know, it was very um, uh, uh, bluegrass. Mm-hmm. Um, but the storyline was stunning and based on a true story. And I was the mayor of this town who had a son who had a kid out of wedlock. And at the end of Act One, in a very fun musical, I take the child, walk to the back of the train, and throw it off the train. And there were nights there were gasps. Um, on Broadway, the guy got booed every night when he walked out. Mm-hmm. Talk about hideous character. Mm-hmm. And it takes a certain amount of uh, of confidence to play somebody that bad. Yeah. Because the, the, you don't unite with the cast the same way when you're that bad of a character. And I've noticed that. Hey, by the way, they're all 18 to 21 years old and mm-hmm. I'm, I'm, you know, 47 mm-hmm. years old doing this show, but I was the bad guy. And I was, he's really, really a despicable human being. I did Our Town mm-hmm. uh, two years ago uh, and it was a, you know, a smallish role. 
but it was an opportunity to perform while I was working at the Paramount Net. And that was a thrill. And it's the third time I've done that show. Yeah. It was a really good performance, I oh, thought. I thought, cool. I missed thought that Barry one. did a good job with that show. It's mm. so, it's beautiful. Mm-hmm. Our town is just a beautiful It really story. is. I had considered auditioning for that one. Yeah. I just was in a place in life for a while that just with working full time. Sure. I literally could not figure out how to devote time to a show on yeah. top of being in. I think you understand that. I did. Just, I went years yeah. when Drew was a newborn. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. If the world was your audience for five minutes and it was a guarantee that they would hang on your every word, what piece of advice would you give? Tolerance. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know that has nothing to do with anything we talked about. No. It's... But uh, we have to tolerate other people's opinions. We have to tolerate their points of view. Mm-hmm. We have to tolerate the guy sitting next to you who who has a different bumper sticker on the back of his car than you and we as a nation have gotten to where we don't tolerate things mm-hmm. and it's sad to me mm-hmm. uh, but it goes beyond that three years ago yesterday uh, a group of about a hundred men took their masks off took their hoods off and walked down the streets of charlotteville screaming white supremacy and they were happy to do it happy to show their faces proud to show their faces i never thought i'd see that in my entire life Mm-hmm. I, I always thought I knew that that racism existed like that. Mm-hmm. I knew the KKK existed. I knew that it was out there. But to see that hundred group of young men willing to take their masks off and show everybody, their employers, everybody else, this is me. I'm white and I'm better than you. Mm. Um, it was despicable, mm-hmm. and, but it's also a sign of where we are as a, as a community. I think that tolerance was what I wanted my parents to give me to tolerate my personal view that was not the same as theirs. But I think it's gotten to the point where we need to be intolerant of those who are intolerant. I love We have that. to go further. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what your personal views are. We have to tolerate other people. Mm-hmm. So if I had five minutes, that's what it would be. Yeah. Let's find a way to, to tolerate people from other races and creeds and points of view. Mm-hmm. And um, that that would be my five minutes. Mm-hmm. I thank you. It's good. It's powerful. My favorite thing about what you just said is that we need to be intolerant of intolerant people. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that doesn't mean that you don't stand for something. It just means that if you stand for something, you know, it may not be the same thing as the person next to you, but we're not going to sit here and decide that they're no longer human. Right. And that they no longer deserve to have their opinions and their thoughts that they're standing on or that they somehow deserve to be absolutely ridiculed and hated and all of that. That's, am am I right? I mean, that's what I'm taking from that. Yeah. Yeah. I just went on a vacation with two guys. We have the exact opposite feelings Mm -hmm. on politics Mm -hmm. and have for 30 years. Mm -hmm. We had the greatest vacation. And we sometimes talked about politics. doesn't matter. They're friends I respect their point of view. I think they're great human beings and we had a great trip. I love that. And it's so important. One of my very best friends and I are on opposite ends when it comes to, I wouldn't say opposite ends because I tend to like move a little bit in the middle somewhere, you know? And so like, I'm not like way over here and he's way over here or anything, but we're friends. Those views do not make or break us as no. a person Good. and as a human. And do I agree? Some things I don't agree with. I have a different perspective and paradigm that I'm coming from as well. You know, and so I just think it's so 
imperative for people to realize that we each have our own reality that we're walking in, but we have to realize the person next to us has their own reality that they're walking in as well. Yeah, that's right. You know, and keyboard warrioring is the the death of tolerance. It's been the death of tolerance. I mean, people feel emboldened when there's not a real human being. Yeah. So I, I would just tell people, I tr- every now and then I go back on my good judgment and I'll, and usually it's when I'm up too late. <laughs> I'll respond to something, say on Facebook, that is, I find, yeah, we're, that we're I, all guilty that I finally get yeah. to where I'm like, I've had it up to here. And when I do that, I almost always go back and delete everything because I'm like, no, if you want to have a nuanced conversation with me, let's do that. But this isn't going to go anywhere. It's not going to be productive. It's not going to be that somebody's going to read my remarks and be like, oh, I'm suddenly enlightened. <laughs> no, they don't even see my, me as a human at that point. They see the words coming out and they're filtering it in their own tone. And and because it's maybe challenging what they believe, the tone they're reading it in is one of offense. They're probably projecting their own tone onto me when they're reading it. And so then there's just nothing productive about it. And so um, I love your advice that you gave. And I know that... It doesn't mean I'm not guilty of doing the same. Yeah, of course, guilty of doing the exact same thing. Mm -hmm. Hopefully it's not very frequently. Right. And and being in the role that you're in, you have to be particularly careful. I mean, it's just the I think we all do. I mean, I I think with social media... We all need to be careful, especially our kids. My goodness. I'm so thankful that when I was in college, nobody had a cell phone to take pictures of what I was doing or Mm -hmm. saying or that anything that I wrote somebody or said to somebody would be around forever because it is. Yes. You're 15 years old and you write something and it could be around forever. The picture of you... Goodness. I I just... I feel sorry. Smoking while you're playing first base. There you go. There you go. (laughs) I might have done that in college. I might have done that. Intermurals, it might have happened. It might have. Yeah. Proud non-spoker for 10 years, but yes, I smoked for a I long time. Yeah, that's good. The last thing I have is what advice would you give someone who says, I'm stuck, I'm afraid to move forward because I'm afraid it won't be good enough? Because you have experience in that and you do it. Yeah, it's okay to be afraid and it's, and it's okay not to move forward for a while. So take your time. Don't feel like you have to do it now. Mm-hmm. You give yourself some time and forgive yourself. My goodness, forgive yourself. Can't say that enough. I, and I need to, and I say it, I need to remind myself too. Mm-hmm. We all, this is part about being adult. You go to bed and you're like, it was a good day. And then you close your eyes and you remember something stupid you said when you were 13 years old. Isn't that crazy how that works? <laughs> that's so funny. I mean, that's adulthood. But forgive yourself. Don't, don't have to make up your mind that second. Mm-hmm. Yes, move forward, but give it time. Take a deep breath. Forgive yourself. Let yourself wallow around in a little bit of depression for a little while. Mm-hmm. Forgive it. And uh, come out the other end ready to go. Mm-hmm. That's it. It's good. It's good. Mm. Thank you. Is there anything else that we haven't talked about that's burning that you want to say? No, I think we've said a lot. It's good. <laughs> awesome. Enjoyed it. Thank you for being here. You know, it's when an Hannah, honor to have you. When Hannah asks you to do something, you do it. That's just oh, the, I love it's that. It's the truth. I'm going to keep always, that part in there. <laughs> always thought the world about you. And, and, and I'm a pleasure to talk to you. 
that means so much to me. I have such admiration for you. And Uh so that really, truly, you have no idea how much that means to me. Thank you. So there it is, friends. What an awe-inspiring story. What was your biggest takeaway? I want to hear from you. Connect with me on Instagram at Pursuing Perfectcellence Podcast or on Facebook at Pursuing Perfectcellence Podcast or Twitter at P-E-R-F underscore excellence. Or you can even send me an email at perfectcellent at gmail.com. That's P-E-R-F-E-X-C-E-L-L-E-N-T at gmail.com. I want to hear from you. I want to know what your takeaway was. What are you learning from these episodes? Thank you so much for continuing to tune in. What actionable steps are you going to take this week as a result of the inspiration that you received out of George's story. And if you liked what you heard, if you got something out of it, if you felt inspired, please share it with your friends. And also leave me a rating and a review on whatever platform you choose to listen to your podcasts. And until next time, let's continue this journey away from the paralyzing pursuit of perfection and toward the empowering expectation for personal excellence. I don't know about you, but this is a really fun ride.